All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Fulcrum Global Podcast, where friends and peers get together to discuss and brainstorm on issues and trends impacting the world of national security, defense, intelligence, and foreign affairs. I'm Sam Kessler, the host of this podcast. And uh, in case you don't know what Fulcrum Global is or does, it's the digital media platform of the Society for Defense and Strategic Studies at American Military University. You can check out our website at fulcrumglobal.us. And we have a wide range of uh, articles and resources and all sorts of content that we put together and create for the, our members and people in the community. So Let's get started. This is our third podcast episode. And today I'm excited to have our two guests. Our main one is Dr. Hans Mum. And our second guest is going to be Dan Opstel, who is the faculty advisor for SDSS. And um, let's just get started with the intro here. First of all, gentlemen, thanks for coming here today. And it's Thank glad to have Sam you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Mum has 27 years experience in emerging and disruptive technologies, fields and information technology arenas. He's been a senior intelligence officer and he's also a cybersecurity professional. After he was in the army, he went on to lead highly visible high pressure projects in autonomous systems research, artificial intelligence, 5G initiatives, cybersecurity risk management programs for the intelligence community, including the director of national security Intelligent uh, National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency. He is a published researcher and is an author of seven books, and he's currently working on his eighth. He is also an advocate for the US to adopt integrated autonomous infrastructure that would allow a dynamic cross sector risk management process through private public partnerships to transform outdated US infrastructure. He's previously taught at AMU, and he currently teaches Homeland Security courses at California University of Pennsylvania, education and doctorate of management with concentration in Homeland Security from Colorado Technical University, an MS in Strategic Intelligence from American Military University, and a BS in management from Chadwick University. He is also a recipient of 23 personal military ribbons medals, including six military unit medal citations and two director awards from the Defense Intelligence Agency. And Dan Opstel is uh, a field grade reserve U.S. Air Force officer, is a faculty advisor on the SDSS advisory board, instructor at AMU in the School of Security and Global Studies. And his courses include a combination of international relations, intelligence, cyber warfare, geographic information systems, advanced geospatial intelligence and counterterrorism. And he previously worked at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and currently works at the U.S. Department of the Interior as Executive Secretary and Civil Applications Committee, dealing with remote sensing and geospatial intelligence matters. Dan is a passionate multilingual advocate for collaborative technologies, education and remote sensing, geographic information systems and support of collective national defense and appropriate civil uses. He has also managed the multi-million dollar geospatial intelligence programs and participated in the creation of Air Force innovations in geospatial visualization. 
Well, you can see both of them have a very strong technological focus that deal with the infrastructure of the U.S. and wide range of intelligence capabilities. It's a pleasure to have you both on here. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much. Well, I hope I covered everything that, at least all the key points, at least, because it's, uh, you guys have very impressive backgrounds. And Dr. Mum, the first thing I'll start off with is, uh, as an intelligence officer, you mentioned in one of our earlier communications that uh, one of your more famous projects was during Operation Iraqi Freedom. As, an, as the intelligence officer in charge of Iraqi playing cards with Saddam Hussein as the ace of spades. What does that mean? So back in uh, um, 2003, when we were gearing up to head into uh, Iraq, uh, obviously we'd gone through the attacks of 9-11. We were in Afghanistan already. Uh, by late 2002, most of the uh, intelligence community knew that we were gearing up for Iraq uh, and we were going to head into Iraq as well. Well, one of the things that I noticed uh, as this was going along was that nobody really knew who we were looking for. So there was a huge disconnect between Washington, D.C. and the guys on the ground. So folks in Washington, D.C. thought, well, everybody has a high side computer, don't they? You, of course, know who we're looking for. We're looking for Saddam Hussein and, and his regime. <laughs> Who's his regime? Most folks that went over to Iraq had never, they, you know, they, they'd never gone overseas. They hadn't been to the Middle East. They didn't understand any of this. So as things moved along, we were getting ready to, to actually cross the border and go in. Kept asking the question, well, what are we going to do? So I brought this up to, you know, some of the leadership and they said, well, you know, you should make a field manual. No, <laughs> a field manual is fancy toilet, okay? So being, uh, you know, I, I was enlisted first and then I ended up, you know, the enlisted don't really read those field manuals. So I said, well, how do we do this? How can I train the troops to understand what they're doing there uh, at the same time of not having them look at it as training? So I actually created the deck of cards. Uh, we looked at, you know, obviously we had, you know, Saddam's Ace of Spades. We did that because the Ace of Spades is the most notorious, you know, uh, card in the deck, right? <clears throat> and we purposely did not use the Jokers. Uh, I used the Jokers as actually instructions to the troops. So most of the, the folks that were over there didn't understand the ranking system. Like, what's a colonel? What's a, a corporal? Are they the same? Who knows? They didn't really know. So what I did was I actually gave them instructions on the jokers because I didn't want to um, I didn't want problems coming down the road like well this is a joke or these people are a joke or Saddam's a joke because Saddam wasn't a joke he was real mm -hmm. and so what I wanted to do was be able to get them to understand who we were looking for who the most important obviously from the ace down who the most important and then who, what what did his regime look like Right now in the U.S., right, we have line and block charts. I can tell you who the president is all the way down to, you know, SecDef or anybody else. <clears throat> you don't have that in the Middle East. So there was a fundamental misunderstanding disconnect because Washington, D.C. was saying, well, 
you know, there, there are certain goals that we want out of the Iraq war, right? We want weapons of mass destruction, which wasn't my problem at the time. It became my problem later. Uh, we want regime change and we want to stabilize the region. That's what President Bush said they wanted. Well, in order to create regime change, you have to be able to find the regime and either bring them to justice or understand that they're no longer part of the regime. Well, they don't have driver's licenses over there the way we do. They don't have social security. They don't have phone numbers. They don't have addresses the way we do. Their, their naming convention isn't the same as ours. Their birth dates aren't the same as ours. So literally we had people going into the country saying, uh, what is your name? <laughs> what, 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 where, what is your address? Uh, you know, what's your birthday? And we would have people who I had a, a young man, he, he looked at me and he says, birthday? His imam kept his birthday. His imam had that information. He didn't, he didn't know his birthday. He didn't know it. So what I was trying to do was bring it down to the level of, of the soldiers so they could understand what they needed to do to be successful in their mission. Um, when it uh, originally was uh, sent out there, it was actually a classified product. Um, it was declassified when, uh, uh, when General Brooks held it up on, on Air National TV. And, um, and then, you know, it ended up being the most successful information operations campaign in the history of DIA. That's their words, not mine. They put it on the award. So it was uh, very successful, uh, and obviously, last many presidents have, have uh, you know talked about the cards, you know, President Bush, things like that. And even as the anniversaries come up, um, it was also a way to sort of dehumanize. So um, when you listen to the news, uh, Fox News, CNN, World News, they would talk about well, they found the the, the Ace of Spades or they found the King of Diamonds, and that was done on purpose. Right. We, we weren't trying to we in no way were trying for bloodshed just for the sake of bloodshed. Right. So there were people who said, oh, you know, this is the deck of death. And you're that wasn't really what we were doing. We were basically selling a product, which was we need to know where these guys are, the, the guys and gals. We need to know where they are. And we just need to know, you know, are, are do they need to be in jail? Are they against us or for us? And are they going to continue with the, the same old regime uh, that they were with when they were uh, dealing with Saddam? Or do they understand it's a new day and they're going to change? So that's really why we did it. Trying to find all of the right people, making sure that we were in contact, uh, making sure that the allies were coming along. It was all of those pieces going on. And, and to, to hear kind of that, that subset story is, is so fascinating. Well, and it was also universal because we had an alliance. So yep. if you were going to do a field manual, you're going to do it in English, right? Exactly. That's not going to help your Polish troops. That's not going to help right. everybody else. And a deck of cards is universal. It was simple. Right. They knew exactly who they were looking for. They knew why, and they knew uh, uh, the ranking order. So it worked out. No, that, that's, it's so cool because it's that pictorial, it's that graphical representation, you know, the power of, of an image, right? I mean, I've got an image behind me of the red tails, you know, that, and that's so iconic, right? So people remember the red tails, you know, and what they had to do to, to just, just to serve, right? And so I, I just love the idea of that pictorial representation. Um, so, all right, Sam, over to you. It's pretty interesting because like a lot of people don't realize that the putting together a lot of the information they don't realize that not everyone operates the way they do. We do here in the U S like we're a very open society and trying to get all that 
information together. Um, it's a lot of work, but it served a good purpose and it, it helped achieve the goal. So that's really pretty amazing. Um, when putting all that together, is it like years of effort of all sorts of analytical pieces that people may have put together that contributed to it? Or was it like a something that was operational based? So it, it was a little bit of both. So part of the, the reason why I was doing it was I was actually working on a, a database. And this database had about 3,000 personalities in it. And we were updating this database and it, it had been around for you know uh, several years and they tried to update and, and uh, uh, keep this information. And what that was able to do was really to, to cross-reference. So we ended up uh, with you know one of the first, uh, you heard of maybe analyst notebooks where you could actually do nodes and network charts. Well, remember this is, this is back in 2001, 2002 when things weren't as cool as they are today. Uh, it took a lot of work um, <clears throat> to be able to do these nodes and networks. But what we were able to do was to take the nodes and networks and be able to bring everything to the regime or to Saddam. So literally we were looking at the idea that, hey, Sam, you were in, in, uh, you know, in Hawaii at the same time as Saddam Hussein. Do you have a connection to him? Is there a financial connection? Is there a family connection? Is there an international connection? Uh, and so that's how we ended up looking at uh, all of these diff different personalities, figuring out the, the, you know, the top 52, right? Figuring out those, but then looking all the way down and going into a black, white, gray list, right? So we were also looking at a, a white list of, you know, these are, are people that are, are pro-American. They, you know, they want change. They want freedom. They want all of these things. They will help over time. Right, they're not going to jump in the middle of war, and we don't want them to. Um, but we we needed them there, uh, you know, afterwards to help the rebuilding efforts. So when you look at you know this this entire uh, uh, you know project of being able to identify the regime, being able to go after the regime, all of these different things, the purpose behind it really was to get to the end state, and the end state was stability. Um, and but we were trying to get to the end state quickly. And the only way that we were going to do that was to be able to move the old regime out, to be able to, to put other folks in. And that's where being able to have our allies understand what we were doing and everything else. The other thing that it did, which I didn't really understand at the time because I was bouncing back and forth to Iraq and other places, it was actually a rally point for the war here in the U.S. Um, I Even now, you know, people will find out who I am, and, and I've had car dealerships in the Midwest stop and talk to me. And they said, you know, you don't understand, like you don't realize what you did. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, we actually took our, our banners down. So they had the big, huge signs out in front of the, the uh, car dealership. They actually took those down and they made a deck of cards uh, all the way across it. And every time we, you know, we, we got one, they, they would put an X over it and they would say, we got another one. It was actually a rally point for the nation, for the war to be able to, to keep them on our side because we had a, a challenge, you know, the last time we were in Iraq, it was the 96 hour war. This was going to be a 10 year war. This was going to be a 10 year effort. And it's, it's turned into almost 20 year effort on and off. Right. But it was a rally point for the war. 
it was a rally point for the administration to be able to say, you know, we got we got the queen of spades today. We got whatever. So they could show progress to the American people. Because when you say, oh, well, you know, we got chemical Ali, what does that mean to somebody? It means nothing to them. If you can show the, 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 uh, the card with the suit and why they're important, because now I understand, well, wait a minute, Chemical Ali was higher up in the deck than a two of diamonds, right? So that was an important guy. So we got an important guy who's now giving us information. So it was actually a rally point for the nation as well. Uh, that makes a lot of sense because you definitely need to have people understanding and getting an idea that, okay, we got this person, we got that. It means this. People like to piece together all the details and uh, get an idea. This is why this is happening. This is the benefits. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really good. It's important because if you get people involved or at least aware, you get public support and uh, it really supports the, the operation too in the long term. And when you look at it, you know, you end up also being able to uh, uh, collect a lot of different intelligence as things move forward. So like Dan was working with the geospatial. Now you could graphically show where these people are. That's right. That there's a lot of fascinating linkages that you can show by spatially referencing any kind of information, right? It could be, you know, who knows who down the street, you know. But it's it, for these purposes, uh, increasingly you see objects being referenced to events, times, timelines, engagements, right? And there's a lot of power to that, right? And so when you pictorially represent them at the top of those elements, and you categorize the information that way in a relatable way, right? That's the key thing. Showing a big giant splash spaghetti chart of networks and, and events and timelines and bad actors and good actors, all of that is very nice to someone that tracks that kind of thing, right? And sits and is paid to analyze. To, to someone who's just out there, they're not gonna be interested in that. The car dealer in the Midwest, you know, not interested, right? But when you relate it to a key Person, when you relate it to, um, um, you know, pictorial reference point, right? And, and to, you know, then all of a sudden, now everyone understands the deck of cards. Now I've related that deck of cards to these key players, right? And then the, it's the amalgamation of the information. Now all of a sudden, you've got something that has taken something that can be very abstract, right? Bad actors moving around on timelines, geospatially referenced, understandable to to, to people, sure, um, but but not necessarily of interest to them. You've now made it relatable and interesting in a pictorial format, and I think that's the beauty of some of Hans's work. There. Yeah, it it sounds like uh, it's it's a version of mind mapping in a sense, where you're trying to put all the key things together and tying it all like that, but with the deck cards. <laughs> so that was roughly two decades ago. Do you think the same process could still be used today or do you have to use more modern or sophisticated approaches? Like, do you think that type of thing is still utilized or do they have to change it with the way everything is with social media, open source and all that? I think that you could still, um, you could still do a version. It would just be a little bit different. Uh, Keep in mind that they did attempt uh, um, you know, a version in Afghanistan, it fell flat on their face with it. Um, the sad part is, is that nobody even reached out to my team to ask them, hey, why are you so successful? You know, why did, you know, how did you end up doing this? It, it wasn't that we just 
threw a bunch of people onto a deck of cards. I mean, there was actually strategy behind what we're doing. There was a thought process behind it. And, and you know, what happens when, what happens if, right? Um, so there's other folks who did try, but they never even talked to the team that was successful, which was really kind of sad because um, in Afghanistan, they had uh, attempted um, matchbooks. They've attempted flyers. They've attempted decks of cards. They've attempted crazy stuff like $5 million rewards. You know, there, there's folks around the world, you and me, who, who were like, wait a minute. If Osama bin Laden had a $20 million bounty on his head, why didn't somebody turn him in? Well, same reason why I started the conversation with, there's a huge disconnect between the glass houses in Washington, D.C. and the reality on the ground. When you go to an average person in Afghanistan and say, I'll give you $20 million, what you just said was la, 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 it meant absolutely nothing. So they attempted many things in Afghanistan that didn't work. Now, um, you know, can a deck of cards work again someday? Um, probably. But I think, again, you have to have a strategy behind it, a reasoning behind it. And why are you doing it? Um, you know, keep in mind that, you know, I think if you were going to do something like this, you'd have to do it more as like a solitaire game because, you know, that's what everybody understands on computers, right? You know, how to play solitaire. Um, you know, a lot of people don't play blackjack or, or, or poker anymore. Um, and, uh, so I think you could do it, but I think it would be a little bit more difficult, uh, with the generational changes. Um, and then what's your target audience? If you're looking at, uh, you know, younger generations, I think the challenge with your social media, um, is, is what's the truth. Am I really honestly looking for the ace of spades or is that what they're telling me? I think that, you know, we, we have a, a, a different world now. Uh, in a world of disinformation versus information, which is is really going to hurt, uh, you know, how we move forward in the intelligence business. Our job is is you know without passion to you know find the facts and present them to the senior leader. We're not political. We're not supposed to be, and so um, I think that it will it, it would change uh, uh, drastically and dynamically uh, if anybody ever wanted to try to do another deck. Do when you're looking at the differences in generations, do, do you think it's important to at least make sure your people working have knowledge both uh, the digital but also the analog side of thinking? Um, does that give an extra edge when it comes to that, or, or I mean, do you think it should be just more because like everything is digitalized, but you know, there's a lot of threats out there that could just take a lot of stuff out, so. I mean, how do you get people to be able to adapt to if they have to deal with an analog environment? Well, I think you've got, you know, you have a challenge just even getting them to adapt to a full digital environment. I mean, you know, you know, our, our government has been trying to digitize everything from the you know Department of Motor Vehicles on up, right? Um, but what they do is they end up digitizing uh, uh, poor processes. So, uh, you know, in, in, you know, certain areas, it's called uh, uh, speeding up stupid. We didn't really fix the process, right? The, there's a frustration sitting down at DMV waiting to, to, you know, register your car. And there's a frustration of what paperwork I'm supposed to have and everything else. 
So we threw it into the digital environment and we didn't really fix the processes. We didn't fix the problem. So I think uh, teaching both ends, uh, it, it is important, but I think the, the process and the actual getting people to think is the more difficult. And that's where, you know, again, when you're looking at the social media aspects of where things are going, you know, are we actually helping them or hurting them by doing certain things? Now I can tell you, you know, in the analog world, since, since I write books, I, I hope you don't go all to, all digital. Uh, <laughs> so I think my books are more exciting, you know, turning a page than, uh, you know, sitting on, on Amazon um, on a Kindle. But I think that, you know, you have to, to look at, at, you know, where these different worlds are going. When you start into the autonomous world, you know, you're not going to have the luxury of, of understanding all of the tactile environment around you. Sometimes that machine is going to make decisions that you may or may not like. And so I think that, you know, we have to teach both, but I think we really need critical thinking skills more. So, uh, you know, in, in that environment. So uh, um, is that what you're seeing in, in uh, your studies as well, Dan? Yeah, this is, this is a great topic. I mean, you know, when the pre-conversation, we talked a little bit about how everyone approaches situations with their own biases, right? And, and, and how the, the aspect, and I'm sure you'll get into more of this. The coding is influenced by the, by the bias that people have, right? We're many times very smart people. I would add to this conversation demographics, right? So understanding who's in the workplace now um, at various levels um, applies to every organization you, you can think of that you work with. And um, um, the, there's a pretty good author, Hayden Shaw, wrote a book called Sticking Points. And it goes into like all these 12 factors of like these issues associated with demographics um, and how you can start to be more relatable in these issues. And I think if we're going to solve some of these really challenging problems like, uh, like autonomous, like unmanned aerial systems and, and what we're going to do about them, um, we're going to have to work together in, in different groups, uh, uh, understanding those age groupings and, and appreciating the gifts that they have and appreciating kind of the things that, can, that are counterproductive. But understanding be hard to even get to that point of critical thinking, which is also essential, right? It, it's about asking questions, and it's about being willing to um, to think through a problem using maybe sometimes a structured analytic thought process, right? It happens in business all the time that you think through a problem set and you analyze, right? And that's what uh, you know SWOT analysis, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right? Just a classic case study of looking at a problem set through a lens and making sure that I capture issues associated with a particular problem set so that I can be better in the future and being willing to, as a group, work on that problem set. If, if we can't get to kind of a collective understanding, it's that much harder than to, to get into that truth, right? That truth space that you have a shared truth. And I think that's one of the problems that, that Hans was pointing out too, like misinformation and disinformation is rampant now, right? It's, it's been, uh, you know, to, to use a little bit of a trite term, it's been weaponized unfortunately, very effectively. And we've got so, to, be able to work, work together to solve those problems. So I think also when you start to look at, uh, you know, these different issues, you, you need to, to look at the, the global view of what does an individual citizen understand and do? So I'll give you an example with, uh, you know, the, the Austin Police Department is now putting in a, uh, a drone department. 
So they're trying to explain to people why they're doing it, what they're doing, what the drone actually will do, can and can't do, all of these different things. So they can use technology for what it's there for, but not scare people for the sake of scaring them. This has been a real issue uh, with all governments, not just the US, looking at the idea of law, laws, policies, governance, and leadership. All of them are behind. <laughs> so when we look at, um, you know, in San Francisco, they put a, a small robot out to try to help with uh, law enforcement, right? They had a bad crime area, so they put this robot out there. And they put a little sign out that said uh, that the robot was, was, uh, uh, was filming, was recording for your safety. Well, do I really believe that? <laughs> I don't believe that at all, number one. Number two is, is nobody actually explain to people what they were doing, why they were doing it, what this robot was or wasn't going to do. So if I opened my door and this robot that literally was almost five feet high, it was like a cone shape and, and this thing's winking and blinking. I don't know what the heck it's going to do. Is it going to shoot me with a laser? I have no idea what it's going to do. Well, that was about a million and a half dollar failure. So what happened was the citizens revolted and destroyed the robot, literally smeared feces on its uh, sensors, and the police had to go in and rescue the robot. This is where communication, regardless of whether we look at the idea of you know, millennials or anything else, we have to learn to communicate up and down the scale. Uh, human communication is still one of the most difficult things we do on this planet. I mean, people talk about, oh, you know, quantum computing. Well, we can talk quantum computing if you want, but guess what? If I can't communicate it to you, it really doesn't matter what it is. Um, and that's really where we're, we're struggling right now um, in autonomous systems, autonomous infrastructure, and then looking at our student body as to what we're, we're teaching our student body. And are they advanced enough to join the work uh, workplace and make a difference? Or are we holding them back with some of the older biases of, okay, well, in order to go to college, you know, you absolutely need a, a physical education, uh, you know, credits. Okay, is, you know, is that, is that really true? Or should we be, you know, advancing where we're going? So it's not, uh, you know, not that we'll solve it here, but it is some of the challenges that are happening and, uh, you know, worldwide laws, policies, governance, and leadership are not keeping up with technology and they definitely are not keeping up with human communication. No, this, I love that point and, and this, the importance of the STEM tech, you know, science, technology, education, mathematics, right? It continues to be something that has to permeate throughout a diverse population, right? That's, that's gotta be, we gotta get past any kind of, hey, this is a certain dominated field by this kind of person or this kind of age group. We're way past that. It's gotta be everyone, right? There's, there's now a literacy requirement, a digital literacy requirement, back to your original question, um, that, that, is, that, that, that requires currency and refueling you know, I mean, it requires constant refueling. It requires engagement, you know, to be a digital citizen or a citizen of a digital world, right? And, and I think that's what, what, what we're getting at there. And I'll also add that, like, the, the popular conception of autonomous and, and RPA, too, is, is very scary, right? I mean, if you read, I mean, years ago, you had Terminator, right? Oh, not that many years ago, I suppose. But you had the, the, the artificial robot, right? You had, you had Robocop, right? You had those things. And even current... Currently, right? I mean, if you read um, uh, 
some, some of the current literature that, that was put out there, um, the, the great story that P.W. Singer tells by, in, in Ghost Fleet, right, which is all about this kind of like, um, you know, basically the supply chain is hacked, right, and all kinds of things are, are put in supply chain and then chips are hijacked, right, so nothing works, right, nothing works anymore, and, and everything turns against the original user without giving away too much of that, that fantastic story, but um, but, but, but that's really scary, right? And getting past that kind of convention of uh, this is a scary new thing that's gonna, that's gonna come get me, right? As opposed to these are cooperative technologies that harness the power of humanity and move us forward, right? But there's almost a, a little bit of an uphill battle there to deal with a little bit of popular culture of, of autonomous uh, UAS and, and other things. Uh, even when there are great stories to be told, right? The success story of Predator, the success story of Global Hawk, you know, those types of things. Um, the success story of long dwell, you know, solar powered unmanned aerial systems, which we're seeing now, right? These things have great implications for humanity. Um, but unfortunately, the story narrative sometimes gets a little um, disjointed. Well, it, it definitely sounds like it's a combination what you're saying in regards to uh, the communication, the policy, and maybe just the level of speed too, would you say? Or because of, it does act, it's very quick in terms of how things function. And, you know, it, it goes back to the critical thinking side, I would imagine, because people have to make decisions here at, at a certain level. Um, you have to weigh a lot of things. I mean, for instance, um, you know, right now I keep seeing indications. I've, I've been seeing it for at least the past year or so about in regards to like the, the, the pending chip shortages they kept saying and how it's impacting industries, whether it's automobiles or other areas. Do you think that's going to impact the auto management uh, in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles and all the, the, the systems you talk about. Do you think so, that's an issue? So I think that it, it has a possibility, but uh, there is a lot of robotics that are going on overseas. Um, the US sadly is, is far, far behind when it comes to autonomous systems. Um, you know, there is a, a, a full automated uh, robot called Pepper, which is a, um, a humanoid robot. Uh, they've got about 2,000 of them out there um, in industry, and they go up and, and meet and greet customers, right? Um, they uh, give information and everything else, and, you know, they're, they're for, fully articulate. Um, there's, so there's a, a bunch of different robots that are out there when you look at that, um, and I think that the autonomous field will, they may slow, but it's slightly different chips than what the, the automobile industry uh, is, is dealing with. Now, when you look at how do we solve, you know, how do we deal with it? Hyundai Motor Corporation, you know, uh, Hyundai bought uh, Boston Dynamics, right? So there was a lot of money uh, put into Boston Dynamics, you know, through the US government, and then it was sold to Hyundai. Um, and Hyundai basically said, you know what? this chip problem isn't going to get solved. So we're going to solve it. And they're making their own chips now. So, it, you know, if you want to look at a car, you know, in a year or two, that's going to be probably cheaper and, and possibly better, uh, you know, look at Hyundai Motor Corporation because they're solving the problem. Toyota is, is right behind them. Uh, both uh, Hyundai and Toyota have very, very robust autonomous systems 
uh, platforms and, and research. As a matter of fact, uh, Hyundai is working on several different things from platooning uh, large trucks together so they can move logistics to it. Um, there's uh, companies that have, uh, you know, different vehicles that are out there. Um, one of them is actually a vehicle that uh, uh, takes off as a quad rotor and, and it basically has a parent-child relationship. And the parent is the quadcopter, but the child is actually a ground vehicle. And so it, it drops the ground vehicle off so it can go and do whatever it needs to do. Um, so there's a lot of autonomous stuff that's going on in the world. Um, there are certain American companies that are giving it a shot. Uh, Ford Motor Company actually has a, a humanoid robot that they're trying to pair together uh, with one of their unmanned uh, vans to be able to do uh, deliveries. But if we look at what technology could do to help this pandemic, look at Uber. Uber was working on autonomous vehicles. If they were allowed to move a little bit quicker, hopefully with an autonomous infrastructure so it could understand where it is in time and space, because that's really one of the problems that we have is that we're, we're relying far too much on GPS and that's not going to get us where we need to go when we're talking about you know inches uh, with an autonomous system. But if Uber was allowed to, to do certain things, you could literally take an Uber taxi and, and you would get dropped off the taxi would basically just put up screens on, on the windows and it could turn on a blue light at high temp, you know, at a, a high reflective, and it could literally sanitize the taxi, put them back down and go to go to the next. Now, as a customer, I'm in no danger now. So technology can be used for a lot of really, really good things, including crazy pandemics. No, I, I love it. And, and I always think about these things, you know, studying the, the, the movement, the spatial aspect of something, right? The, 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 these autonomous vehicles, right? The driving piece. I, I think it's, it's, it's almost like comical now, right? You see commercials on the TV sometimes. They go, oh, you, you know, your car is essentially a driving computer, right? There's so many sensors on there. But the beauty of that is that it now makes it that much easier. Case in point are all these light detection and ranging called LIDAR sensors that allow you right, to get information back past to the, uh, to, to the human, right? So there's that augmentation stuff that, that's permeated the industry. It's like the backup camera in a car, right? You're not gonna drive a car anymore most of the time, right? If you buy a modern car that doesn't have a backup camera, that's just an idea whose time had come and it made so much sense. But coupled with that are all of those sensors that most people don't even realize they're there that are giving that light detection and ranging piece. Now there is a concern, right, of course, and I can't speak fully to this. I'm not a supply chain expert, but yeah, if you're dealing with transistors and those kind of chips and things like that, you could have an issue with, with disruptions depending on, on where those are made and who's making them and things like that. But, but the point is we've kind of entered this era of this augmented era, right? Already that, that we're, not even, we're not even having any trouble absorbing it. Cars just, they beep at you and you change the lane, right? They, they beep at you, you know, or they adjust speed or they even brake and stop for you. That, that's here now, right? And the beauty of all of that, that all comes out of that technology. Um, it, it's not that much further a step um, in, in some instance from a technology perspective to have the driverless vehicle. Now you get into insurance and you get into all the other aspects of human life. There are huge leaps and bounds to say nothing of actual legislation. These are huge leaps and bounds that, that are different, right? And they are different globally, right? in terms of how we deal with, with, with those aspects. But um, 
it, there's a lot of power and the, the geospatial power is, is tremendous. These, the situational awareness that these vehicles have now on the ground is, is just, a, it, it's a huge leap forward. Yeah, Ed, I think Ed, you, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that, uh, I was just gonna say that, uh, you know, the augmented piece that, that Dan was talking about, you know, there, there's you know, a couple of different challenges you have is, is one, you know, trying to get people to understand what that augment can do and maybe shouldn't do. Uh, when we look at legislation, when we look at laws, when we look at rules, um, you know, I, I have a friend who has a very fancy Subaru and it has adaptive crews, it has all kinds of dry, you know, adaptive things. And literally he can let his hands off the wheel and it makes adjustments and everything else. Okay, well, you know, you know, when you're living in the Washington DC area, you deal with bumper to bumper traffic 24 seven. So he was leaving DC about 11 o'clock, leaving out of Georgetown, gets on 95, there is a parking lot on 95, literally for 20 some odd miles because they decided to do construction and bring 95 down to one lane. So he was tired. He said his adaptive cruise and went to sleep. Now, was that, was that what the technology was really meant for? No, but you never know what the consumer is going to do with these technologies. So you better be ready for what it's gonna do because he said, I knew I shouldn't have done it. He said, but I was, I was literally too tired to drive. He said, I woke up 20 minutes later. I was only three miles difference. And he was perfectly fine. It kept him right in the lane and right, you know, right where he was supposed to be in time and space. So sometimes we have to watch what these things are going to do and really sort of, you know, how much are we letting this augment and, and go towards full autonomy? The other challenge is, is, is generations. So I, I know some folks who purchased a vehicle and it has all the buzz whistles and toys on it. And they're driving the, the, the vehicle down the road and all of a sudden it says, brake, 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 brake. And then they freak out because they're like, what, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm nowhere close to anything. Yeah. Well, that augmented system was just trying to give you a warning, but they didn't understand what that warning was. Because when, when we say warning to us, it's, you know, okay, yeah, I'll turn the microwave off. The, the generations, you know, uh, uh, past generations, when you use the word warning, that's like a bad thing. Like bad things are about to happen. So again, we're back to that human communication. How, how you know, how much do we augment this world and try to communicate when we're communicating on our level and not the entire spectrums level? of where things are going. How do you find that type of a medium? Do you, it, I mean, if you're an Air Force and you are using automotive planes rather than pilots, or if you have pilots, but you have everything on auto, do you just train the drivers to know everything? I mean, do you literally have to change the way they do driver's education courses in the future? Is that the, is that the approach or, I mean, do you have to standardize this stuff to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I, there, there, there's a certain amount of standardization that's necessary. And, and, and yeah, the training protocols do change, right? It doesn't mean that you will always do that thing. And it certainly doesn't mean you may do that thing in a scenario like combat where you're going to have a, you know, a, a problems or you might not do that thing in a certain kind of weather scenario, right? So, so you know, from an aviation perspective, 
sure, you know, yeah, we can let, let the autopilot on, but just like Hans's example, of the, you know, the driver being asleep, you know, going fully to sleep. Yeah, that, that's not the intent of the, the device. And, and similarly, um, I submit to you if the sensor ball operator on an unmanned aerial system, a military unmanned aerial system and the aviator went to sleep, uh, they'd be in for a world of hurt. Yeah, sure, there'd be an automated system. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll even land the platform for you, but they certainly wouldn't be accomplishing their mission. And, and if they were missing opportunities there, um, that there's, there's a lot of hurt for them in, in a disciplinary sense, right? So, so, so from that perspective, yeah, there, there's a point to which you wanna make sure that, um, that you change your standard operating procedures in a manner that um, accomplishes your mission, but doesn't let you forget that you still need certain core abilities. You know, an aviator still needs not to fly. There was a story told, you know, about, well, you know, if you're in the Navy now, you know, everything's automated with GPS. You don't need to be able to read you know, star charts anymore or, or understand what a sextant is, right? I submit to you that those are excellent reasons to study both of those things, especially in a current modern warfare environment where, um, you know, those capabilities, GPS and other systems like it, um, we, we hope they're there, right? We hope the scenario that is it in in Ghost Fleet, for example, and then it's not unusual to look at these scenarios. That would be, you know, a, a real problem for, for your navigation. If you're so dependent on the platform taking care of you and, and the augmentation taking care of you constantly that you can't find your way without it, um, we, we've obviously gone too far. But I think this gets back to, you know, bias and standards, right? <clears throat> so when we look at, you know, our bias, uh, might be that, you know, we would like our autonomous systems to do, you know, what we consider good. Uh, other people may want those autonomous systems to make decisions and including kill decisions that we may not. Um, and that's where um, right now there is a bias um, with technology because there are countries out there um, who are pushing the envelope for what that means. Uh, for these different technologies and what they're, you know, what they're teaching uh, their folks, uh, whether it's ethics or whether it's just, you know, being able to augment uh, uh, what they're doing with these unmanned systems. Uh, and then we have a, a, you know, so we've got a bias there. And then we have to look at, you know, what is, you know, what is the standard um, and who's following it? <laughs> because, you know, just because we have a standard or just because we have, you know, written policies doesn't always mean a whole lot. There's a Star Trek uh, original series episode um, that kind of makes me think about that when you're talking about kill switches or, you know, making the decisions. And there was a original series episode where they're on a planet and the country, uh, the planet had warring sides and they had gotten into so much uh, destruction and killing that they decided they would let the computer make the decisions. And eventually the computer did not make the, you know, decisions that, you know, from a human perspective made sense because they were, um, they were, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember, they were chosen to like Kirk and his crew, they were chosen to be the next casualties or something along those lines. But um, anyway, they found a way to reverse that and to help look at, resolving their conflict eventually, but the concept of um, trying to figure out the kill switch based on ethics and critical thinking, um, I guess in the 
22nd or 23rd century or whatever century it was, it's even hard then, I suppose. But how, how do we go forward with, like, if we have to make such decisions, uh, you know, whether rely on it, you know, with critical thinking, how do you apply that to the technologies we have, whether it's with AI or 5G, you know, we have a lot of cybersecurity risks and we have to make sure we have systems that are protected so that we can make better decisions on the systems we rely on. So um, I guess I'm trying to figure out a question with all of that. <laughs> well, so, <clears throat> so I, I, I think I can answer in a couple of different ways. So when you're looking at you know certain uh, questions of of AI and how to uh, how to study how to program how to use, remember that you know we've got Elon Musk is working on Neuralink where uh, you know he's actually putting sensors into your brain, and so at that point you know that's going to be interesting. But we also have companies here in the U.S. who are chipping their employees. Um, chipping is very actual normal in Europe and Eastern Europe. It's not abnormal to be chipped these days. Um, and you do have some companies here. Well, what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for, you know, the, the, the person? Um, does that enhance learning? I don't know. I mean, Elon Musk claims that, you know, Neuralink will enhance learning. Um, but learning what? And learning how? And does that have ethics in it and a bias? And which way does that bias lean? Um, because it will have bias in it. Uh, anything that's programmed has a bias in it. So I think when we look at, at that piece of it, um, it will be difficult to see how we actually train the next generation. Um, I don't think it's going to be uh, the old idea of, of you know, uh, read and regurgitate. At least I hope it's not. Uh, I hope we get past that. But I think if you look at cybersecurity, when you're looking at things like 5G, 5G is uh, um, a radical separation from where we are today with central computing and uh, the movement of information. So when you start talking 5G, now you're starting to talk about computing on the edge. You're starting to talk about uh, speeds that we don't really even understand what it's going to do and all of that. When we have that, what does that mean? Well, that means that literally all of our cybersecurity uh, is broken because all of our policies, everything that we do is based on a central compute. It's based on either cloud or a central compute. Well, now if I'm computing on the edge, how am I trying to protect the edge as well as the central, as well as the movement, as well as everything else? Our policies aren't built for that. And so now we're gonna go back to the drawing board. Um, NIST is working on some of it and they're doing a pretty good job of trying to move forward with it. Uh, but when you look at, at artificial intelligence or even 5G, how many people have the ability to spend time, usually their own free time, um, spend time and, and energy uh, and resources to be able to help write these things? Well, if you go to NIST, they're, they're going to ask you to go on to a panel or, or help them, help them write these things. But that's free. That's free to them. You normally don't get paid for that work. So you have an immediate bias as to who's actually writing those things. So it becomes a little bit more of a difficult situation and a difficult question than what people uh, may lead on. So um, are you seeing the same thing, Dan? 
So some of the thoughts are related to the encryption, the protection of, of data, right? That, that's a huge part of this. And, and with quantum technologies, you know, the, this kind of thing becomes very different, right, from the infrastructure that exists right now. And that's kind of the scary frontier, really. Um, and I don't think it's been fully explored yet. Um, I think most people get, get a little intimidated by even the word quantum, you know. They, they think, wasn't that a James Bond movie? And yeah, it was. It was. But, yeah. Uh, um, but you know, it's not—it's not something that they've looked at or thought about. But you know, I think increasingly we see out what the results are of, of an infrastructure that is not properly protected. Right, the Colonial Pipeline recently occurred. Really, you wrap your mind around that. Like that's a real problem, right? If, if our infrastructure can be um, attacked in such a manner that um, we're now no longer able to maintain control. And it causes, you know, in a relatively specific area, it can be can be targeted, right, and cause this massive effect, right? These massive second, third, and fourth order effects. Those are the kinds of things that you know we need to be aware of, right? And those are the kinds of technologies we need to be able to adapt to. And five G allows the transfer of so much more information than 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 ever before, right? Which allows more complex. Um, data to be um, to, to, to be to be pooled and collated in, in, a, in a cloud architecture, and and cloud is is great, right? Because you've got this wonderful uh, diffuse architecture, right? No longer gone are the days of like, hey, my computer blew up, so my stuff is gone, right? Or you know, it used to be, oh, I lost my paper. We went to, well, I got my computer. Oh, my computer, it, you know, froze or is hacked. It's gone now. No, no, we got you know Dropbox or whatever, something in the cloud. But you know, if someone has access then to that larger treasure trove of information now all of a sudden it's not a couple papers and maybe a video game on one hard you know desktop somewhere you've now lost access to possibly you know thousands of documents and things of that nature in this cloud architecture so, so security and cloud architecture is another huge aspect of this so i would say just to wrap up um encryption uh, 5G information transfer and cloud architecture. These are all things that we have to wrap our minds around. And people are. But I think back to the original point, right, that, 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 that Dr. Mom was making earlier as well, the legislative piece, right? You know, the Computer Security Act, or the, you know, I think we need a Cloud Security Act, perhaps, at this point. I mean, I'm not sure anymore. Uh, again, not my exact field, and, but when it comes back to, to strategy and defense matters, we got to think about this stuff. Um, other countries are thinking about how they'll secure that infrastructure and how they'll keep it safe. Finding the right kind of balance is crucial. Well, how do, how do you put together legislation like that? Because it seems like you're, you're dealing with a lot of special interests, but you also have to have people from, you know, from the industry to work on it and with the emphasis on that. So it seems like you really have to get a lot of people who actually deal with it on a regular basis putting it all together. Would that be correct? Or I it's going to be a huge group of, of folks. Hans, why don't you take it? Yeah. So, well, so uh, you know, you've got a, a bunch of different folks, you know, in here. But uh, you know, one of the challenges that we have in America is, is that we don't necessarily uh, teach um, uh, cyber hygiene or force it, right? So if you go to other countries, uh, the idea of having antivirus on your computer is, is more of a law, like it's more of legislated. It's more of like, are you kidding me? You don't have this. Where if you go and buy a computer today, nothing says that you need it. 
So it can be easily hacked, it can be easily taken over, um, everything else. So when you look at that, and then part of this is, is you know, <laughs> it's our education. Um, and we stop educating ourselves a lot of times in America. You know, once we, once we finish school, that's it. We're done. We're not, uh, the, the continuing education doesn't seem to, to stick very well with a, a lot of folks. So, you know, if you think about, you know, think about what Dan was saying with quantum, um, you know, we had an entire generation that was frustrated and trying to figure out how to set their clock on their VCR. Now, the same generation is still here. A lot of them are actually in leadership positions. And now I'm going to try to explain quantum qubits. I'm going to try to explain quantum teleportation. I'm going to try to explain uh, uh, the multiverse to somebody who is struggling to set a clock on a VCR. And I, I think that, you know, this is one of those things where we have to be aware uh, of, you know, who our legislatures and other folks are, keeping in mind that there are still a number of people up on Capitol Hill who do not use computers, who do not understand any of this, which becomes very difficult then to get legislation through. And then you have to, to look and say, okay, you know, if we pass legislation, right, bad guys are always going to change, right? It doesn't really matter. Um, so how do we try to stay ahead? How do we get to the point where, uh, you know, we, we deal with zero days? How do we deal with that? And keep in mind, it hasn't been that long that we started putting hackers in jail, but we really, you know, we really don't have that much robust law, especially international, because again, if you're, you know, if you go and try to, to pass legislation, you can pass it for this country, but the internet doesn't reside mostly in this country. It actually resides overseas. You know, you know the, this country is actually a small portion of the internet uh, or a small portion of that data set that is out there. So when you start to look at artificial intelligence and you start to look at the idea of, you know, how do I, how do I program that system? Where's my training data coming from? Well, an AI system, I'm not going to waste my time banging on your front door anymore. I'm not. It's too costly to me. So all I'm going to do is find out who's doing your training data. I'm going to write a couple lines of code in that. And when it's all said and done, you're going to get the wrong answer and you're going to do what I wanted anyway. So legislation is, is good, but being able to educate the whole entire populace as to what's going on and then basic cyber, you know, basic cyber hygiene, uh, you know, again, when your password is password, we're in trouble. Yeah, that's a great point. And I just point back to one of the books you wrote was on, uh, drone airspace integration, right? So, I mean, you know, how do we get to the point of drone airspace integration if we can't do kind of those basic, more, or those more basic things? And this is not to say that, the, that everyone falls in one category. Sure, advances have been made, right? Clearly people are much more aware, cloud computing, you know, all of these mobile phones, obviously everyone's got a, a smart computer with more technology than the entire Apollo mission in their hand every day, right? That's right now, but. But, you know, for example, with getting back to autonomous and unmanned, right? How do we even do that, right? Just, just a just quick commentary. So that, you know, you've got companies like Domino's. They're delivering pizzas now with autonomous systems. So how long is it going to be before they start flying? Well, they've already sort of asked that question. Well, we have a little bit of a disconnect, right? So if, if the ground vehicle is talking to the air vehicle, who's in charge? Well, you know, 
the, the, the flying piece in this is going to say, well, of course I'm in charge, you know, I'm the most dangerous piece, but the ground vehicle is, you know, can be in charge just as much. So this is why, you know, I, I had written a couple of papers on the need for an autonomous infrastructure. We need to be able to get, you know, uh, uh, to understand time and space. And some of this stuff doesn't have to be multi-billion dollar programs. So a lot of these new cars, they have basically radars on the front of them. So put a radar reflecting uh, a reflector would cost about a dollar each, put one on the side of the highway so it can talk. And now it has a feedback loop because, you know, GPS isn't always going to be there. Um, there's issues with certain GPS and other countries, they have some pretty good GPS as well. Um, one of my drones that I use for experimentation, um, I'm actually uh, working on a system right now where I can fly over your building and inject malware into your system. Um, <clears throat> it's just a lot of fun. So, but one of the things that I found out is that I need to be able to, to beam ride in. So I'm, I'm looking for certain things and I need to be able to lock, lock on and be able to stay with a very small uh, um, airspace uh, um, in time and space. And I couldn't do it with the American GPS. Just, just couldn't get a good enough signal. And now I can sit rock, rock solid. I have no GPS drift. And so now I'm working on the next portion of the payload. Um, so when you look at these things, we need to be able to look in and have the entirety of the, the, the population understand what all of this stuff is. And we are not doing a very good job with some of that. That's well, a fascinating example. <laughs> well, I, that's, that's really interesting. What, um, and this will probably be the, the last question here or the last point, I guess, to talk about um, before, but you look at it from a, a big picture perspective and you look how other countries are, are doing this and you look at the current state in terms of tensions with other nations, how does the U.S. stay abreast of all this while dealing with all of that? And if, if other countries have their programs that are implementing a lot of similar stuff, how do you adapt your process to while you evolve but you're still secure it. How do you really handle that aspect when you're developing all of this neat technology, but you know, it's, you know, you have to, you're still doing it while you're, you're dealing with stuff going on outside of the country. How do you, how do you really handle that? Because do, do people in Washington realize that? I think a big part of this is maintaining a culture of innovation and open-mindedness towards new ideas. And, and the, the example I would I point to is one that I got several years ago in my current work in innovation issues. Um, we've heard about the start of a program um, and it, it involved um, somebody on leave, military, uh, military person on leave, frustrated with the mission overseas, um, went over to one of the innovation elements of the Air Force and said, look what I put together. This is my idea. This, this system can work if I use these Best Buy components and I link it with this, this pseudo unmanned system. Uh, and if you shape all these things together, why can't I have this downrange? <laughs> and, you know, in some cases, if, if that's what happens to your innovation director, you know, there are entities that would have been like, um, who are you and what are you doing? You know, but, but fortunately, there was a culture of innovation in that particular unit that said, wow we've got a problem that's been identified for us. And not only that, we've got a smart individual who's a user downrange who understands and is aware and is making life or death decisions. 
And guess what? They've presented us with at least the beginnings of solution. We have an obligation to take this forward, fix this. And it actually, this particular, that particular example that I'm generalizing became a very successful program. And it's, it's used to this date to provide over the horizon, basically a perspective or video perspective on, on, on situations where um, a person cannot see over the next hill or over the next horizon, right? So those kinds of technologies and the willingness to adopt them quickly. And then there's many scenarios and there's many ways that that kind of scenario could play out. The things that are going on overseas and how fast um, technology is being adopted. Um, you know, Toyota does home robots. Samsung does home robots. Um, we have a situation where, you know, we're, we're scared of a Roomba vacuum, right? Uh, I, I think that it, it tells a whole different story um, in the U.S. when we look at the Internet of Things. Um, what does that mean? How do we use them? Um, how do we secure them or do we? Um, and so I think when we're looking at this, I think we have to keep not only an open mind, but I think we have to have cross-border um, collaboration. We have some, but I think that we're, you know, we're also uh, a little jaded sometimes, you know, uh, when we look at the science community, uh, you know, well, China's doing this, so we can't do that, or, or somebody's doing this. And I think that when we look at the world, how small the world is now, I think we have to start to, to move forward with some of this. Um, because the world standard for a home robot hasn't been created. The world standard for uh, integration of autonomous systems or AI systems or quantum. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, quantum repeaters are now uh, coming uh, online and they're talking about quantum repeaters in space. We haven't even figured these things out yet. Um, and again, we're, we're back to still trying to set the, the, the clock on the VCR. Um, and I think that at some point, the U.S. is going to have to uh, um, sort of give up the idea that, that we're going to stay in the past and the rest of the world will move forward and then we'll catch up. Because that's really what, where we're at. Uh, um, the world moves forward and then we try to play catch up. And then we say, well, we're the U.S. We'll just throw money at it. Money isn't going to mean anything when you're talking uh, in the quantum realm and AI realm. Um, and then, of course, it really doesn't mean anything in the autonomous systems realm. But when we're starting to talk about blockchain, about how the banking systems are changing, um, you know, I mean, you've got nations that are now taking on crypto as their main currency. Mm -hmm. And we're still arguing over whether uh, cryptocurrency is, is real uh, or whether it's legal. People are moving on and uh, we have a great risk that if we don't start to adapt and adopt a lot faster, that we're not going to make it. Um, we're going to have a lot of hard problems uh, when you start looking at, you know, where the augmented realities are, where exoskeletons, I can buy an exoskeleton online for $3,000 and, and hook it up to myself. I mean, I can do all kinds of crazy things these days, very cheaply. And so, you know, are those technologies going to be used for good or evil? Well, that's leadership's issue to figure out. And leadership is struggling with that. Um, there's people, you know, everybody who's sitting on, on this podcast, right? We're all sticking our hand up saying, you, you tell me what you need and I'll help you. Um, the challenge is that you don't see leadership reaching out for that help as much as they should.
I, I agree with that because the leadership and like you said, with ethics and critical thinking and tying it all together, it's going to be more important, I think, going forward with that. And like going back to blockchain, I remember that reading stuff about tokenization, how everything from real estate to investments and health and everything is going to be, could be tied towards the tokens aspect of blockchain. And I always have to revisit that just to remind myself how that works, but it's, it's interesting how they tie it all together and putting people framework, like, you know, like you said, the people who are stuck with programming the VCR crowd, that's going to be another thing they have to really learn about and try to apply it to how they function or make decisions. So, wow. Well, any other last feedback before we, we sign off or Dan? Oh, uh, thanks. No, I, I just appreciated the opportunity to have this conversation today. I think we covered a lot of ground. There's a lot to explore and unpack in each of the things. And I do, I think the, the biggest thing to, to take with you is just to keep that open mind, especially as the technology evolves and be willing to evolve with it and to be willing to kind of pass that solution onward, you know, kind of like the example I just gave. Um, you know, when there's an opportunity to pass that information forward to a receptive audience and, and be creative. Well, and I want to say thank you for having me on the, the podcast. I appreciate Dan as a, a cohort here, helping me uh, stay on, on topic. I appreciate you, Sam, uh, giving some good questions. Uh, you know, my, my last thought is, is that, you know, again, this is going to come down to leadership. Leadership is a word that has been tossed around for many, many decades and centuries, right? And, you know, what, what does it mean? Is a, is a leader born or, or can they uh, be built? Um, but the leadership right now, uh, we really have to start to look at, you know, where we're going to make sure that we understand, you know, what our workforce is supposed to be doing, right? Are, are they supposed to be thinking or are they supposed to be working? Well, you know, I've got robots that can do construction work. So does that mean that we don't have construction workers anymore? No, that means that I have other people that, that can think about how that robot can make more houses easier or more efficient, right? So I think we have to, to look at that piece. And then I, I think that somewhat we need to back out of some of the old thinking processes. Um, you know, the U.S. government, I, I was in the Army uh, for, for many years. And, you know, the very first thing uh, when you do anything in the Army is you get a form. And it has your name, rank, everything else. The folks coming up today, they don't understand why. You already have all that information. If Google can figure out, you know, a form and, and it's a pre-populate form, why can't you hand me a pre-populate form? Um, and I think that, you know, even the U.S. government is struggling uh, trying to keep people because their workforce is, is hearing that, you know, we're, we're innovative, we're future thinking, and, and, and then they get there and, and they fill out these forms after forms after forms with name. It, it just doesn't, uh, you know, this is one of those things when, when two things don't connect, uh, people start to, to, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, eh, I'm not believing you at all, and I'm going to go someplace else. And I think our workforce has to be ready uh, for what's going to happen. Companies uh, already built quantum repeaters. So I think that, uh, you know, leadership um, is, is got a real challenge on its hands uh, to move us into the next decade, next century, and, and make this work out well for humanity. Well, I, I certainly hope so, too. I really appreciate your feedback. And I would really like to have you back on another time, if that's all right.
Absolutely. That was a really great conversation. I appreciate your feedback. I'll be happy to continue that another time and we can carry on to the next level of discussion on this. That works. Just let me know. Well, Sounds good. We'll do. Sounds terrific. Well, thanks again. We're going to sign off and uh, thank you for listening. And uh, gentlemen, thank you for being on the show. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.